me ask you something though as we start. Uh, can you hold up your Bible? We're going to do the old Joel Osteen thing here, but hold up your Bible. We've got some Bibles in here. All right, this Bible that you hold right here, do you believe that it is the Word of God? Amen. Let me ask that again. You're not quite that enthusiastic yet. Is the Word that you're holding up right now, is this the Word of God? Amen. Do you believe what it says? Amen. Well, why don't you practice what it says? Why don't we practice what it says? I mean, we know that this is the infallible, the inerrant, authoritative word of God that not only reveals the Father's love for us and his wonderful gift in his Son who died for us and how we can become reconciled with God through faith in his Son, but it also says how and reveals how we are then to walk in the fullness of Christ. And if we say we believe this, but don't practice this, what does that make us? The greatest accusation the world has against the church is that we are hypocrites, that we do not practice what we say we believe. If we believe this is the word of God, the inerrant, the infallible, the authoritative word of God in my life, in your life, and in his church, then why are we not practicing what it says? Especially when it comes to the area of conflict. This Bible has a lot to say about relationships. God is all about relationships. How can you say that? Well, the Bible says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wage of sin is death. Yet the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We were at enmity with God because we had a sin that existed in our lives that we were born with called a carnal or an Adamic nature. And that sin, that carnal nature, caused us to be at enmity with God because of the sin in our hearts. And he sent his one only son to die on a cross so that through faith in his atoning work on the cross, we might become reconciled with him and enjoy a right relationship with him. And now through faith in his son and his atoning work on the cross, through faith in him, as we trust in him, we now have a right relationship with the Father, and now we can commune and fellowship with him. But in that right relationship with him, he says to those who know him, to those of us who are believers, to those of us who are in his family, adopted as his sons and his daughter under the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, he says to us, there are ways in which I want you to behave, not only toward a lost world, but also toward each other. And it's imperative that we not only understand that the Christ who saved us also established a way by which we are to follow in his footsteps and live out his words in our day-to-day -day lives. And in the passage in Matthew chapter 18, if you have your Bibles turned there, we're going to look at verse 15 together. I want us to understand that we must be resolved, we must be resolved to settle conflict God's way. God has a prescription. God has a remedy. God has a plan. God has a way by which we as his believers, as children of God, are to then implement these principles and precepts as we seek to be resolved to settle conflict God's way. This is not an option. It's not a choice. If we belong to him and we belong to each other, we must be resolved then to do everything we can to, to keep the peace in the family and to be in right relationship, not just with him, but with each other. 
Now, granted, it's hard for us to maintain a right relationship with the Father because uh, of our failures and our weaknesses and our shortcomings. But he also says that, that in the difficulty of us relating to the Father in the right way, we must also follow that prescription. So we find in Matthew 18, verse 15, a, a prescription, one snapshot of the many other passages that are found in the Bible that help us understand how we then are to live in a right relationship with one another to settle the conflict. We're going to end this series in just a little bit, and I know you'll be excited about that. Because this is a little challenging here, to rise to the level and the standard of God, especially in handling the conflicts that we have with our spouses, with our children, with our parents, with our co-workers, and even with each other. And we must seek to be unified as one body, one, one family, under one God, and live out the principles and the precepts of God, and settle the conflict God's way. How do we do that? Let's look at the passage, beginning with verse 15. We find, resolving conflict God's way, we must define the cause of the conflict biblically. I must define the cause of the conflict biblically. Notice what the passage says in verse 15, beginning with the first phrase, if your brother sins against you. Let's look at it again. If your brother sins against you. Let that soak in. If your brother sins against you. The word if is the largest two-letter word in our English vocabulary today, I'm convinced. But the word if in this text indicates to us in the original language that it's not if they will sin against us, but when they will sin against us because the opportunity avails itself 24-7, seven days a week. They will sin against you. Why? We have in each of us, an Adamic, a carnal, a sinful, a selfish nature. And we are going to act that out in every human relationship we have over time. We had a beautiful wedding here that happened last night. Gail actually passed the test. He didn't pass out when he stood and gave his daughter away. It was a miracle, wasn't it? But we all know that young people, when they walk the aisle and they leave that aisle and go out and then begin to form their families, are they going to have conflict? Come on, those of you who have been married long enough, can I get a witness? Is there going to be conflict? We start out with the best of intentions, but even those who love each other dearly and deeply and who commit themselves to each other for the rest of their lives, there's going to be a time when that husband that you love dearly is going to act like a man. Can I get any man, ladies? Men, let's reciprocate. There are going to be times when our ladies that we love dearly are going to act like women. Can I get any men to that? Okay, not very, you know, there's a lot smarter men in here than I thought. Yeah, you're smart men. But there's going to be conflict. And the fact that as we love each other and work together and minister together and serve alongside of each other and study the Bible together and rub, each, rub elbows with each other day to day, week to week in the fellowship of the church, that your brother or your sister in Christ is going to do something that's selfish and self-centered and maybe it's intentional or maybe it's unintentional. Maybe they have no idea that they did it, but they do it and unintentionally they hurt you and you feel pain and there's a hurt. So when they sin against you, notice not only the opportunity, but notice then the one who is the offending party. Who is the offending party? Your brother. The word brother means that they are born-again believers in Christ. They are authentic Christ followers. They are people who, like you, have placed their faith and trust in Christ. They have turned from their sin, recognized that Jesus died for their sin, and now they have a new life, a new heart, a new way to live their life, a new purpose, a new everything. 
They're your brother. They've been adopted like you into the family. We all have a biological family, but we also, when we come to faith in Christ, we become a part of a spiritual family called the church, called the body of Christ. We are a family. And I have already, through this conflict series, I've already told you that our family, our biological family, from time to time had conflict. Because my parents and my brothers and sisters are very selfish and self-centered. I'm not. They're your family. While they're not your biological family, they're your spiritual family, and we act like family. And some of us have been to reunions where we go and we rub elbows with relatives that we don't, we don't quite want to be around very much because there's conflict, unresolved conflict. And how awkward is that? And how sad that is when we as a spiritual family come together on a Sunday morning and there's unresolved conflict. We got a lot of doors and a lot of halls, and you can avoid them for a time, but at some point you're going to bump into each other, aren't you? And so he says it's, it's your family. We have a responsibility to each other to, to act a certain way because we are family. And you don't abandon family. You don't leave family. And, and when they make you angry and mad, you don't just step up and walk out and get another family. You're family. You resolve the conflict. And that's what he's saying. If you're a family, you, you will have a responsibility and obligation to resolve the conflict. Why? Because you're one in Christ. You belong to the same family. That is your responsibility. But when your brother sins, notice then the, the, the offense here. What is the offense? The offense is what? It's sin. What is sin? It is a violation of the standard of God. God has set a standard in his word by which you and I are to behave, how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to treat each other. There are passages upon passages upon passages you know conflict in the in the in the church is not new it happened it's been happening since the foundation of the church from the very beginning there are instructions here time and time again verse and verse and verse how we are to act how we behave the attitudes we are to have toward each other as brothers and sisters in christ and the, and the sad reality is that, that while we know that there are times that that either no fault of our own just because of our own you know our own ignorance or sometimes, and on a few occasions, it's intentional. That we just act very human. And we hurt each other. And there's pain. There's heartache. Because of sin. You see, the biblical reason for the, the cause here is, is sin. In other words, what he's defining here is, is not my preferences. Not my preferences. We all have preferences. And it's the preferences sometimes that become huge in our lives. And we have no biblical basis to hold somebody responsible for a preference. Some of you are going to get in the car in a minute and are going to go to lunch somewhere. And, and more than likely, if you haven't already in advance decided and determined where you're going to have lunch, there's going to be somebody in the car who's not going to like where you're going for lunch. Because they have another preference. And sometimes we allow preferences become those things that divide us. Sometimes we not only have preferences, but we have prejudices. Sometimes we have perceptions that are not based upon reality. And because we have perceived these things to be true, doesn't necessarily make them true, does it? There has to be a biblical precedence, a biblical foundation, a biblical reason as to why we are hurting. And if we aren't hurting for a biblical reason, then we need to release the hurt and give it to God and not allow it to impact and affect the relationship. 
because it's not biblical. Unless it's a biblical offense, we need to let it go. Just because we didn't get our way. Or they weren't what I expected them to be. And notice he said, if your brother, notice what it says, sins against you. What's the objection? They've hurt me. My objection is that I feel this way. And and it's personal, isn't it? They have either failed to do what what the Bible says they're to do and treat you that way, or they 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 have clearly violated a biblical principle, and now there's pain and there's heartache and they're hurt, and it, and it, it was against you. It was, it was against you, and now you have this, this thing that resides in your heart and this thought that's in your mind and this, this, this thing that you're wrestling with and struggling with because you know that it's painful and it's hurt, and every time you see them, it's a reminder of what's going on. And so he says to us, as we reflect upon that, make sure that there's a biblical cause to the pain and to the heartache and to the hurt. Secondly, not only once we define the cause and make sure that it's biblical, and if not, we dismiss it, we must then cultivate a proper motive in dealing with the hurt and the harm and the heartache that we feel. There's, there's a proper motive, and, and we, yes, are to go to our brother, and we're to go to our sister, but we must make sure that we have the right motive because we may be biblically right, but if we are morally or in our attitude wrong, and we go with the wrong attitude and the wrong heart and the wrong intent, we're wrong. If we go to correct or to rebuke or to settle the score or to make them hurt, or whatever, any other reason other than to reconcile with the brother or the sister who's in sin. That is the only motive that we have. have, You have gained your brother. He says it very clearly. The only reason why we go to the brother and go to the sister is to reconcile. And we do everything that we possibly can to become reconciled. And if there's any other motive other than reconciliation, it's the wrong motive. But that's hard when we're hurting. That's hard when we're right. But you can be right as rain. But if you conduct the wrong actions and go with the wrong motive, you're wrong. He says, if he listens to you, you have gained the brother. The, the gain here is a financial gain. It's a, it's a marketing term. It's a, it's a business term. It means that you have invested in this, and now you reciprocate. You know, anytime we go to our brother with the right motive, or our sister, and we resolve the conflict, not only do we gain, but they gain, and the body of Christ gains. We all win. And I like the win-win thing. I don't like the win-lose or the lose-lose. I like the win-win And he's saying here, this is a win-win. Why? Because they have listened to you. They have listened to you. The word listen here means they've understood your heartache and your hurt and your pain. You've gone with the right intention, with the right motive, and you've displayed in humility and with grace and with mercy and with kindness. Listen, this is what has happened, and this is how I feel, and, and you've sinned against me. And so they've received this, and because they have received it, they have recognized their sin, and they then repent of that sin. They've, they've understood it. They've heard it. They have now have a desire to be reconciled with you, to restore the relationship, and they repent. Repentance is simply acknowledging that they have done wrong. It asks for forgiveness. And thirdly, it abandons whatever it is that's causing the hurt. Repentance is not repentance until you stop what you're doing that causes the hurt. To simply say, well, I acknowledge that, and I'm sorry, and they keep doing it, that's not repentance. And so they repent. And when they repent... What happens? The relationship is restored. 
And the individual is strengthened and the body of Christ is strengthened because Christ and the Father and the Spirit know how valuable and how powerful unity is in the family of God. So much so that he takes the time to record this in many, many other verses about unity, about love, and about forgiveness, and about reconciliation. The motive is reconciliation. The motive is for restoration. It's not to kill or to destroy or to maim or to hurt. But it's for restoration. Thirdly, we need to take the right course of action. Once we then determine that that I have a biblical cause for my hurt and my heartache and my pain, and and once now I, I have cultivated the right motive, my heart is right, I recognize the grace of God in my own life. I'm humbled to the point where not for God's grace, then then where would I be? And I'm not coming with a condemning spirit or or, or a spirit of condemnation or settling the score. And I approach in humility and grace out of love for my brother and to restore the relationship because I miss him. Did you know that one of the greatest tactics of the enemy is is to divide and conquer? Because if he can isolate me from the body of Christ and get me out here on my own, I'm an easier target and and an easier victim for him. But when I'm in the body and we're together, it's harder to, to to, to, to deflect. And it's harder for him then to defend against a unified body, a family. So we take the right course of action. That's 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 huge. And Jesus lays out a clear prescription for the right action. Let's, let's just read it. Number uh, verse 18, uh, verse 15, the third part of that verse. There's a lot packed in that one little verse. Notice he says that the first course of action is to seek out personally that individual. To seek out personally that individual. Go and tell him his fault between you and him. Go and tell him his fault between you and him. Notice what it says. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, he wants you to leave leave the position that you're in. I just have images of, uh, of, of, of the prophet um, uh, Jonah that went and delivered the message and they repented and he got mad and he's over here, he's sulking. They repented. <clears throat> you know the story? Well, a lot of us, when we get hurt, we're offended. W- w- what's our position? <clears throat> Can't believe. <clears throat> we're over here having a pity party, we're sulking, we're whining, we're complaining, right? And he says, get up from that position. Rise above that position. Stop being in the position that you're in as the victim and assume the responsibility. Leave where you are. And he says, let him know his fault. Why? They might not have a clue. Well, how could they not have a clue, ladies? You know what I'm saying? I can't tell you, 35 years of counseling. Brother John, you could probably testify to this. When you're in counseling, ladies will always say, well, if I have to tell him what he did, it's not worth saying. He ought to know. Can he tell by the look on my face and the stomping of my feet and the pounding of the pans that something's going on? Ladies, I got some, I got some news for you. Not most of the time he doesn't. It's just a fact. Well, I go to church every Sunday and I avoid them and they should know by the way I look and the way I sit. That, that. 
they may not have a clue because what they did may have been completely unintentional. And he says, go and let him know his fault so that he can know what he did or she did. And then notice it says, limit your interaction between you and them. Them alone. We got Facebook, we got Twitter, we got telephones, we got cell phones, we got coffee shops, we got all kinds of places where we can sit and we can just, they did this to me and they did that to me. Alone. You know, I want to sing that song. Well, it reminds me of my dad when I first started pastoring. You know, he was giving me some pastoral advice to a young guy who's starting out in ministry. And I, I found this to be true. He said, son, let me tell you about a man who came to, my, came to me one time. And he said, you know, pastor, everybody's saying this. And he come a little bit later and said, everybody's saying that. And everybody's saying this and everybody's saying that. He said, it didn't take me long to realize that not everybody was saying it, but he was saying it to everybody. It was him saying it to everybody. They weren't saying it to him. He was telling everybody. Tell it to Jesus alone. You know the song? Whenever you have a tendency to open your mouth and start begin to talk and tell other people what so-and-so did or didn't do or failed to do, sing the song. Tell it to Jesus. Come on, let's sing it. Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. He is a friend that's well known. Have no other such a friend or brother. Tell it to Jesus alone. Tell it to Jesus and only Jesus. Nobody else should be in your business. Tell it to Jesus alone. Lay it at his feet. A lot of times he's the last one we go to. Tell it only to Jesus. Seek them out personally and limit your, your interaction. Don't go, well, I'm going to go see so-and-so. You know, they did run to me, so you know, you'll be in prayer for me. Be in prayer, be in prayer. How many times do we, we call prayer an opportunity for gossip? Be in prayer, be in prayer. Once we seek them out personally, we need to share the hurt privately. And the reason I use the word privately is because I want you to notice this text. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is still a private meeting. Still a private meeting. Notice the condition of the meeting and the cause of the meeting is because you've gone to him one-on-one. You've not told anyone else about the hurt that you're feeling, the pain that you're, you're feeling, and you've gone to them one-on-one and you've talked to them and they've, they've dismissed you. They've denied it. There's been a little bit of conflict. And now it says, take Two or three, why? Well, we know what Deuteronomy 19.15 says, the Mosaic Law, don't bring any charge against anyone without two or three witnesses. We know, again, confirmation of that in 1 Timothy 5.19, where he says, don't bring any charge against any elders unless there's, there's a witness of two or three as well. It, it's the same concept here. There, there's a choice that we make then at this moment when we, are, we feel dismissed or we feel denied justice or, or the, the, the relationship isn't reconciled then we notice that we're to go get two or three and we're to take them with us. These are trusted people who are, I believe, also believers. Although it doesn't say believers here, I don't think it's wise to take an unbeliever to a conflict between two believers. They don't know Jesus. They don't know the redemptive work of Christ. They don't understand grace and mercy. Two believers with you, three that you believe are walking with God, spirit-filled, biblically sound. And notice what happens then. 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You need confirmation. You need confirmation. Now, I think what he's saying here is that you don't go and pick out the two or three, and I will come over to Brother Andy and say, hey, Brother Andy, I need to go see, uh, see uh, let's just pick on somebody here. Brother Denny, I can pick on you, Brother Denny. You know, I I need to, Brother Denny, he's hurt my feelings, and I want you and I, but let me tell you what he did first. And and let me me tell you all about it. Let me lay all the evidence out. What I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get you on my side. I'm trying to stack the deck. What do they call that, a hung jury? And then together, after we conspire, then we go in there, and we let Brother Denny have it. What's he going to feel? Attack. They've already come. You know, when I do that, I put him in a bad position because he only sees one side of the coin. He only knows one side of the story. There are only two, always two sides to every coin and two sides to every story. Maybe I'm in the wrong. I need to give my brother the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to come to Brother Andy, and, 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 and I may, may take two or three others, and I'm not going to preempty the meeting. I'm going to come, and we're going to find out together in the meeting right there we're going to hold a court. Now, it's not a court of law, but it's a biblical court, a Christian court, where I'm going to present my facts, I'm going to let them weigh out the evidence, and I'm going to, make them, I'm going to allow them to, to then render the verdict. And then this individual is going to also do the same thing. They're going to present their facts, they're going to weigh out that evidence, and they're going to make a ruling about who actually is at fault. Sound fair? Why would I do that? That's how the family of God operates. Because we need two, three, four people who have not been biased by prejudicial relationships and, and misinformation and taking sides prior to the case being considered by the two parties. And it says here the evidence established. There's a verdict that now has been rendered and established. And what this tribunal does, it exercises then, this is how then you, you become resolved. This is how you restore the relationship. And then there's a decision to be made on both parties. Yeah, we agree with that or no, we don't. Now, if Brother Denny's offended me, and I'm, I'm good with that, Brother Denny has a choice, well, I'm going to do it or not. Hopefully he say, yeah, I'll do that. And then we, we become, what's the purpose? To be reconciled. To be one. Because we're brothers, we're family. But here's, here's the third step. Notice what happens. But if he chooses to listen, not to listen to them, let it, tell it to the church. Let the church know. Tell it to the church. It's interesting, he says, then settle it publicly. You know, first of all, I seek out personally this brother, and then I share it privately between two or three others. Now I take it to the church. Now the church has to render a verdict. And, and I present my case, and they present their case, and, and the church gets to decide. And once then the church, after serious prayer and searching the scriptures and, and, and examining the facts and looking at the evidence, then the church then, under the leadership of God, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being led by the word of God, they then render a verdict. And then if that brother, notice, refuses to listen even to the church, sounds pretty stubborn to me, doesn't it, to you? If he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There was no worse thing to be called in Jesus' day than a tax collector. Can I get an amen to that? Nothing sure in America as an American except death and taxes. 
What is he saying here? Separate yourself from that brother spiritually. Separate yourself from them spiritually. Treat them as an unbeliever. Does that mean we don't love them anymore? No. Does that mean we're still angry with them? No. Does that mean we gossip about them? No. Does that mean we persecute them? No, we wouldn't do that to an unbeliever. We love unbelievers. We want them to understand to know the redemption of Christ and how they can be reconciled with the Father because of their sin if they just repent and turn to Jesus and accept him as their Savior. That's our desire. They're, they're not redeemed. They're not regenerate. They're not like us, yet we love them because for God so loved them that he gave his one and only son. He, he's seeking reconciliation. He loved them even before they loved him. Even when we didn't love him, he loved us. That's the attitude of the believer. I love my brothers, my family. I'm, I'm in pain and I'm hurting because we haven't been reconciled. and We're not one. We're not together. And there, there's a hole in my heart and there's something missing. And I love him and I, and I want him to repent and I want to be reconciled. But I have to separate. Why? Because sin's like cancer. It affects everything that it touches. And if at some point we don't separate ourselves from them spiritually then we too might become infected because it only takes one bad apple to spoil a what? Because if we don't treat that sin, we don't treat that sin, then we don't take care of that sin, we don't treat that sin, and what happens to the body of Christ? That's not the way of the church. Now back, I think in this time, they were denied communion. Because one of the responsibilities of those who take communion is that, that they are confessed up and there's no sin. They've repented of their sin. I mean, they're not sinners, but they've repented up to current sin. They're currently been repented for all their sins, so they get to take communion. I think they were denied communion, but I think also they were denied access and fellowship into the community. They were not as they should be. Why? Because sin separates. So by what authority then does the church get to do this? It's always questioned, isn't it? Whose authority do you get to act this way? He says to us what authority. We need to rely on that higher authority. We have authority in Christ to make that a reality. It's not our authority, but it's Christ's authority operating in and through us because of his word and because we know his ways and because of his power and his presence and his provisions. We can access then that presence and that power and we can exercise this kind of discipline. How does that happen? Notice in verse 16. He says, I'm, is it 16? It's 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Keep the contextual uh, interpretation according to what has just been said. Don't, don't take it out of context because there are certain denominations, and especially the Catholic Church, that believes that, that a priest has the right to, uh, to exercise forgiveness. There is no priest, there is no person, there is no pastor that has the right to tell you you are forgiven. There's only one who forgives sin, and it's the Father through faith in his Son and his redemptive work on the cross. And if we repent to the Father for the sins that we've committed, he then promises to forgive. Repentance belongs only to God, not to any man or any woman or any church. It only belongs to Jesus. And yet, we here have the responsibility to be able to say, your sins are forgiven. But is that us doing that? No. By whose authority? By the authority of the Word. By the authority of the Word. Romans 8, 1 says, there is now no condemnation to those who what? There is therefore now no condemnation to those 
in Christ Jesus. We can affirm the forgiveness that God the Father has given us because we have an authority, and authority is the Word of God and the work of God and the purpose of God. We can know that if we place our faith and trust in Christ and turn from our sin and receive Him and trust Him as our Savior, I can declare to you, if you've done that, your sins have been washed away and you are forgiven. By what authority do I say that? Because it's here. That's our authority. Now, from brother to brother, 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the authority of the word of God, if you confess of your sin after post-conversion, you are forgiven. But if for whatever reason you continue in your rebellion and your resistance and your hostility and, and you defy the brother and you defy the smaller group and then you defy the church and you say, well, I don't care what they say, I'm not going to repent. We have authority to say, well, then you aren't forgiven. How do you say that? Because of what it says in here. Right? So we've been given the power to declare forgiveness. But not only have we been given the divine power to declare forgiveness, but we've been given divine provision. Notice it says in the next verse, again I say to you, if two or three agree on earth without any, about anything they ask, it will be done to them by my Father in heaven. He's not saying that we can change the heart and the mind of God, that we can get together and, and, and the three of us can get together in a little prayer meeting and we can say, okay, this is what we want God to do. And so we've agreed and so we're going to come to God and we're going to pray and God's going to have to do what we agree to do because that's what this verse says. Is that what this verse says? No. The context of the verse describes two or three. Remember he says, if you go to him one-on-one, that doesn't work. Take how many? Two or three. So if two or three together are the church, agree with God. You have prayed, you have searched the scriptures, you have sought God's purpose and his plan and his will. You understand now his ways and you exercise those ways. You agree with God, not God agreeing with us, but when we submit ourselves to the standard of God and we agree with God and we exercise the authority that God has given us, and when we do that, he will, notice he said, he will, it will be done to us. He will provide. But notice not only that, but it says, for when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. There's another verse that's often taken out of context. And it's, it's, it's used in that way, I think, because where small people, small churches get together, where two or three are together, they like to say, well, there's two or three, and the Bible says two or three together, God is among us. That's true, that he's present. But when you're by yourself, he's present. You don't have to have two or three to claim the presence of Christ. If you are a born-again believer and Christ dwells in your heart, you have his presence everywhere you go. You don't have to have two people there to declare his presence and to claim his presence. So that's not what he's talking about. In the context of the scripture, he's saying that when God's people seek God and they secure the plan and the purpose of God in this contextualization here in this relationship and they exercise the authority because they are in agreement with what God wants to do they have then the presence of God to guide them to lead them and to empower them to exercise that which God has entrusted to them isn't it great to know that with the presence of Christ when you exercise this kind of this kind of thing and, and try to resolve a conflict you have the person and the presence of God with you encouraging you empowering you, providing for you 
all the resources and all that's necessary to reconcile the relationship. To reconcile the relationship. That's your only motive. That's your only goal. Reconciliation. So with that in mind, as we come to the close, here's the final question. Am I resolved to living in peace with others Christ's way? There's a right way and a wrong way. There's not your way and God's way. There's only God's way. And there's only a right way. And that right way is God's way. And any other way, I don't care how right you are, it's wrong. You won't have his power, you won't have his provision, and you won't be guaranteed a presence that enables and empowers you in order to just implement what you believe you're doing. So what's the resolve? Conflicts are going to happen. Go to them. That doesn't help it. Take two or three. That doesn't help it. Bring it to the church. So we're ready to conduct court today. I'm just kidding. You know, life is hard. It's messy. And it's important that we examine our motives, examine our heart, to make sure we're right with God before we take any action. But once the word of God gives us his direction and our motives and our hearts are right and our minds are clear and we're approaching with the grace and the humility and the strength of the Father, assuring us that he will provide for us the resources that are necessary to implement what God has revealed to us is his way, we have nothing to worry about because he's with us. And when he's with us, nothing is impossible. And when God is with us, his desire for us is always, always bringing us together, making us one, brother and sister, under his leadership, under his sovereignty, obedient to him, living our lives as he dictates we should live. When I relate to you like that and you relate to others like that and we relate to each other like that, his way, not our way, there's nothing, nothing that a unified body cannot do. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.